Good morning and welcome to this week's edition of Let's Get Growing. I'm Gary Folio, your host, along with Bob Dodds from the Lee County Extension Office. And things are coming up roses, right, Bob? That's uh, interesting week. <laughs> Busy week. Uh, heck, well, a little cooler temperatures, so oh, we're, we're doing well awesome. with that. At yeah, least the, yeah. the ground isn't cracking so bad anymore. No, we sure could, We need some rain in the worst way, Gary. That'd absolutely. be absolutely fantastic for the corn. Um, I'm hearing the cool temperatures are pretty kind to the state fair. And um, I think they're kind of counting on setting a new record as far as attendance goes. So That'll be great. We'll see what happens. Always good things up at the fair. Exactly. Gary, on Thursday, big day. If, you're, if you enjoy farming and kind of keep track of farming, uh, we had a crop report. And usually the August report reports higher than actually turns out to happen. And still, the August crop report came out and showed that the... Uh, corn, um, they overestimated the number of corn acres, overestimated the corn yield, and they revised those down, which caused the price of corn and beans to go up considerably. And so I thought this morning I'd just share with our listeners a little bit about what we're kind of expecting. And I'm just going to talk about Iowa this morning, but Iowa's expected, we planted about 14.2 million acres. We're expecting to harvest about 13.8 million acres. Some of those acres are made into corn silage. Um, also, some of those acres were flooded. As of August 1st, and these numbers are as of the 1st of August, we're expected to yield about 177 bushels per acre. And if we compare that to the federal the U.S. yield, that would be around 153. So Iowa, of course, leads the way with a very, very high yield. And our production is expected to be about 2.43 billion bushels, uh, less than 1% above the 209 or 2009 record high production year. But our um, estimated crop for soybeans, we planted about 9.2 million acres of soybeans. We plan to harvest about 9.11 million. The August 1st yield expectation is 52 bushels per acre. It's up a bushel from last year. And soybean production would be about 474 million bushels, down from last year's production of about 496 million acres or bushels. So uh, I thought those were kind of interesting numbers. I know the trade is really concerned about how much corn we're going to have at the end of the year. Uh, Our carryover is very, very small. And we're kind of even expecting the 2011-2012 year to be even tighter stocks. So that will equate to higher higher food prices. I'm afraid. Yep. 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 And um, so I guess I just say that not only for our consumers, but also our livestock feeders are still number one use is feeding uh, corn and soybeans to livestock. So meat prices will probably be higher as well. Hold that thought. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. And thank you for joining us to Let's Get Growing. More people are shopping at their local farmer's market. And the advantage? More money stays in your community and you can buy fresher fruits and vegetables direct from the farmer. Joining me is Mike Bevins, the state horticulturist in charge of farmer's markets. And I guess first of all, if a community doesn't already have one, how do you go about starting a market? Well, the most important thing is to find someone in the community that wants to act as the market organizer or the market manager. Once that person is identified, it gets a lot easier after that. 
We have a farmer's market development manual to take you through all the steps of starting a market. We have a marketing specialist on staff to provide information and resources for you. And then we also do an annual workshop to train farmer's markets and improve their skills. That's great. Sounds like there's a lot of help out there then. You bet there is. Okay, so then once you're set, what are some of the um, benefits that you've experienced? Well, obviously, farmer's markets help the small family farmers. Uh, they also provide the best direct marketing outlet for consumers and producers. When, uh, when you go to the market, you can find out exactly how your food is grown and you can talk to the people that grow it for you. They offer a lot of varieties at farmers markets that are picked at peak flavor. There's a lot of ethnic varieties of foods there that you can buy as well. And the important thing is the varieties that are there are the ones that provide the most flavor. They're not necessarily grown for uh, long transportation in a truck or long shelf life. Okay, all right. And then looking ahead in the next few weeks, what are some of the fresh produce that we can expect? Oh, we're going into peak season for farmers markets in Iowa. We're coming into that wonderful sweet corn season in Iowa. There'll be tons of different types of tomatoes at the markets. Potatoes will still be available, greens, beans, peas, apples are right around the corner, raspberries are coming in right now, so it's a great time to go to your farmers market. Well, that all sounds really good. <laughs> and if you would like more information on farmers markets in your area, be sure to log on to these websites. For Gardening in the Zone, I'm Liz Gilman. Step over here, sir. I put up with a lot, and while I'm forced to tolerate airport security screeners juggling my junk in public, what I won't tolerate is a power blower that won't run. That's why I use Echo Power Blowers, professional-grade power blowers backed by a five-year warranty. Armstrong Small Engine, two miles north of Donaldson, Highway 218. Use an Echo Power Blower. Get serious. This is Cindy Haynes with a Garden Calendar Minute. Summertime is full of flowers. It's a shame that we can't appreciate these flowers in winter as well. But wait, there is a way you can enjoy some of those same flowers indoors months and even years later. You can dry them. Harvesting and drying flowers is really quite easy. There are certain species of flowers that are noted for their ability to retain the shape and color of their flowers when dry. But if you don't know if you have some of those species, why not give it a try anyway? Worst case scenario is that you have a messy flower to clean up. When harvesting flowers for drying, first select a few flowers that are in peak condition. Avoid blooms that are damaged by insects or too mature because they tend to dry poorly. Next, hang the flowers upside down in a dark, well-ventilated location. That's it. In a couple of weeks, you should have dried reminders of your summer garden to place in bouquets throughout your home. For Iowa State University Horticulture Extension, I'm Cindy Haynes. KSB Bank has been in existence since 1868, proudly serving our customers. We have strong roots and a history of providing excellent service to generations. So if you need banking products and services, stop in at one of our four convenient locations and let our dedicated employees work with you to start your money growing. KSB Bank, member FDIC. Strength you can bank on now and in the future. And we're back with Let's Get Growing. We kind of left off there with uh, talking about a little higher corn prices and a little higher bean prices. And, of course, uh, that equates to the public. It's going to cost a little more for food I'm products. afraid. I'm afraid that's right. On the positive side, I wanted to talk about the USDA only makes this report once a year, and that's on, or once during the growing season, and that's the commercial apple production. 
And I thought it was kind of interesting to take a look here at the Midwest. And Illinois is the number one producing state in the Midwest. And in 2010, they produced 52 million pounds. And in 2011, they're expecting only 45 million. In Indiana, being second, 26 million in 2010, 25 million in 2011. And Iowa comes in third. And uh, we produced 3.8 million pounds in 2010, and we think that we'll be producing 4.1, which is an increase in 2011. Afraid not at the Dodds place. Boy, <laughs> we don't have very many apples set this year. I'm not sure what happened, but we're sure uh, either going to need to import some bees or change some spring temperatures, or I'm not sure what. You didn't happen uh, to see Dan Workman crawling up over the hill, did you? <laughs> I didn't. Okay. I didn't. <laughs> but anyway, so I just wanted to mention that. You know, Gary, we haven't spoken about this, I don't think, and I'm going to kind of rely on your mechanical background Uh-oh. here. But, um, you know, a lot of parents are starting to take some, starting to think about taking kids to college Or maybe some of our gardeners have a pickup and they have a small trailer that they pull behind that pickup, whether they're hauling a tiller or whether they're hauling a mower or a cargo trailer that's headed to the University of Iowa or Iowa State. But I've seen that way. We always we always (laughs) struggle with lighting on on many of our trailers, and I guess uh, just I uh, had a little experience this last week, and I just wanted to share uh, with our listeners that there is a lot of good information on the internet. I know sometimes wiring wiring a trailer, I'll say it here. There you go. Or rewiring a trailer or troubleshooting a trailer seems a little bit overwhelming. But on most of our our very simple trailers, ones without electric brakes, of course, basically it comes down to about four wires. Yep. I think. Yep. One wire for the brakes and turn signals, same, Correct. probably yellow. Hot wire, ground. And then, uh, and then the same, and then, like you said, Gary, basically a ground, and then um, I guess those are the ones that come to my mind. But I guess the key to me is to make sure that you have a good ground. I, I think that seems to be the number one problem. And that is problem. probably the thing that is overlooked the most. We all, um, all want to go buy that $25 bulb. To put in the back when maybe really all the problem was, um, or the new lighting. Right. Uh, right. When a lot of times it is just the ground. Uh, We run into it here with uh, pulling our big boom box and everything else, and and it seems like the ground wire is always the thing that's the problem. It is. And uh, I don't know how that happens because I've, I've done them personally myself, and I know they're right, but they seem to get pulled off. A couple of tips, you know, it seems like the less we use these trailers, too, uh, the more they set, the more the ends kind of just become right. dull. They don't actually rust. They just kind of become dull. Right. Some of these, uh, you can purchase at some of our auto stores just some electrical cleaner. Sure. Sometimes you need just to use a little wire emery brush. cloth, wire brush. Yep. So um, d- just some thoughts and Keep comments. cleaned up. Exactly. And you will be much happier in your trip north. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. So I thought I'd just mention that. But there are some good, uh, very good articles on the Internet. Um, I can't remember. I didn't bring any of those with me today. They're pretty but much all the same, the wiring diagrams. And if you go to yep. uh, any of your, your automotive stores or anything like that, they have diagrams for yep. you. So. Yep. And don't cut too many corners uh, on the outlets. If you need to redo some of those, make sure you get some good quality right. outlets. That's for sure. Well, Gary, I have to. I just absolutely have to. It's been a challenge. You know, we've talked, we've spoken a lot about moles over the last few years, and we talked about trapping them. There's where your apples went. Been pretty successful <laughs> on most of that. 
But these raccoons continue to be a challenge, and it's been fun. I've had so many emails about raccoons and raccoon stories, and I'm honestly thinking about probably we need to sit down and just publish a book of Can You Believe This about raccoons. But I'd almost trade you raccoons <laughs> for groundhogs. You know, we were talking about that yeah, last we last. We seem week. to have a lot of groundhogs. We we have one that's underneath a shed, right. and I think he's right. already made it all the way across underneath I think the ours is concrete. Part brown bear, the way he waddles, <laughs> he's a pretty good sized groundhog. Well, a couple of things I thought we just I promised a long time ago that we were going to talk a little bit about raccoons, and I thought this morning we'd just talk a little bit about some facts. I think to control raccoons, you really have to do some study, and you need to kind of have a, a good idea of what you're dealing with, and, and most of our listeners probably do. We always think that ra- raccoons actually are found throughout most of the United States, and they're really commonly found in wooded areas along rivers and streams and marshes or lakes. But they, like crows, have learned the ability to adapt, and they feel right at home in some of our urban and suburban areas, that's for sure. sure. In fact, they really enjoy that uh, trash can um, outside. Dog food. Dog food. They love to find their way into your attic. Or, in fact, they've even been known to pull off some of the fascia boards and shingles. Yep. And they even enjoy being underneath the deck in the backyard. So these are all places that they seem to turn up, and I'm sure there's many, many more as well. We've often spoken about live traps, and we'll talk a lot about that here in just a few minutes. But a couple of things I would like people to know about raccoons, and I don't mean to make this worse than it is, but they do carry fleas and ticks and lice. They do also um, sometimes carry distemper and mange and also some of the uh, parvoviruses. And on rare situations, they can carry rabies as well. So um, they can be a challenge, that's for sure. They do. I've spoken with some of our master gardeners who also have chickens, and they love to visit the chicken coop. Yes, they do. And can cause some real problems as well. The uh, adult weighs in from between 10 to 30 pounds. Uh, Most daily movements of raccoons are within a relatively small area. To me, I thought it was a fairly large area. But males normally will will have home ranges no larger than two to three square miles, which I think is a pretty good area to cover. Pretty good area. Yeah. Females, they'll stay usually about one to two square miles. And the juveniles are usually less than one mile. Um, The home range uh, is usually less as the winter approaches. And during extremely cold days, raccoons are very... Uh, are not very active. In fact, raccoons do not hibernate during the winter, but they will sleep several days during these extremely cold periods, and I found that very interesting. They are uh, nocturnal, as we mentioned. They're solitary, except when the mating season takes place, and this usually occurs sometime between January to March, and the female mates only once a year. And usually less than half of the yearling females will mate, while adult females normally will mate each year. Gestation period for a raccoon is about 63 days. The average litter, about three to five young, and they're usually born in April or May. And they weigh in at two ounces. And so they so do grow. They, they, they are. are. <laughs> they absolutely are. In fact, you don't have to go too far, and you'll talk to someone, and we do not recommend this at no. all. They should not be a pet. But there have been raccoons raised, I'm sure, by people as well. But They're almost irresistible. They are. They open their eyes at about three weeks, and they're weaned in about two to four months. And that usually takes place around the end of summer. 
And they have a very, this I found very interesting. Raccoons generally have a real short lifespan. About 50 to 70% of all populations consist of raccoons under one year of age. I thought that was kind wow. of interesting. Yeah. I had no idea. They're omnivores. They, they sure grow quick. They do grow quick. Their <laughs> rate of gain is extremely good. When you were talking about the 10 to 30 pounds, I don't know how many 30-pounders I know. They're, they're pretty healthy. They're doing well on this sweet corn especially. Omnivores will eat either plants. They eat either plants or animals, depending on what's available. This includes fruits and vegetables, especially sweet corn. And uh, animal foods may include grubs and worms and crickets and grasshoppers and crayfish and clams and frogs and fish and bird eggs, all of these things. So quite a wide menu, so they do pretty nicely. Um, I guess the best thing I can say is live traps do work pretty well in, in yes. capturing raccoons. And, uh, and it's important if you're going to grow some gardens to make sure that you have the fence up well in advance before the pressure begins. Because once they get Don't used bother to, locking it either. That's right. Once they <laughs> get used to it, out. they will. It's incredible. They are just absolutely everywhere. But uh, the population this year it seems to be extremely high. And I'm not sure if it was the weather or the season. Um, but I have to say, too, we ju- they just have very few predators anymore, especially in these urban and suburban areas. So the raccoons, and if you do happen to decide to use an electric fence to control them, of course, out in the countryside, not, not in town, uh, they should usually, um, we usually uh, place them about six, inch, six to eight inches above the ground for the first wire and 12 inches for the second wire. Have, have you hold that thought, and we'll uh, be back after a word from our sponsors in Iowa State University. people who used to be jealous of gardeners with full sun. But once you see all the advantages out there for shade, you'll soon realize that it doesn't have to be thought of as a curse. Joining me is Richard Duran from ISU. And Richard, give us some ideas of what will grow well in the shade. Uh, there are actually quite a few perennials that will grow well in the shade. We have things like a still bee, a Solomon seal, bloodroot, uh, Virginia bluebells, coral bells, heartleaf bernera. So quite a few perennials will do well in the shade. Uh, some do bloom. Uh, and then things like the the ferns and the salmon seal are basically colorful foliage. Okay, and then of course hostas. We're headed here at a hosta garden at, at the Iowa Arboretum. Right, there are hundreds of different hosta varieties. Uh, they are the premier plant for the shade. Uh, they're actually quite variable. They're low maintenance, easy to grow. Uh, they vary in height from like maybe three to four inches in height up to maybe three to four feet in height. You have your greens, your golds, your blues, many variegated forms. As far as flowers, you have those that have white flowers, blue flowers, purple flowers, and actually some have a very uh, nice fragrance to them. So yeah. they're quite diverse and quite useful. Now, what is the host of the year for 2004? That is some and substance. That's a a variety gets to be like three to four feet tall, maybe four to five feet wide. The actual foliage is kind of a yellow-green color. Okay, and then any special tips for shade gardening? As far as tips, um, typically you probably want to go ahead and mulch the area when you're done planting. Uh, use some wood chips, maybe two or three inches. That's going to conserve moisture and keep out any weeds that might want to try to grow. And some plants may require some periodic watering like the astilbes. They lack a nice, constant supply of moisture, so you may have to water some plants on occasion. Thanks. And if you would like more information on shade gardening, be sure to log on to these websites. For Gardening in the Zone, I'm Liz Gilman. Well, we're down at Gate City Seed Company, and Dave's doing a little summertime dance over here. He's 
doing I'm trying. I think it's a rain dance. I think it's a rain dance. Maybe we can get some of this uh, grass to grow, then we'll have something to work on, okay? But we still do have the bugs trying to come in. Of course, Gate City Seed can help with that. We've got uh, the rodents. The mice are moving again already. Every time we got a change in the weather, the mice are trying to come in. Of course, we have the one bite down at Gate City Seed. It works every time. They can't be immune to it like Decon and your others. Buy one bite of Gate City Seed. Any kind of insect problems, any kind of problems in the, in the house or yard, Come and see us at Gate City Seed, 824 Main in Keokuk. KSB Insurance is your hometown trusted choice insurance agency dedicated to meeting all of your personal and business insurance needs. Give us a call or stop in at our Keokuk or Burlington location and let one of our friendly agents work with you to save some green on your insurance. KSB Insurance, protecting what matters to you. And we're back with Let's Get Growing. want to thank everybody for tuning in each Saturday morning. And want to thank our sponsors. If you get an opportunity, stop by Gate City Seed and tell Paul and the folks down at Gate City Seed in Keokuk. You appreciate him sponsoring uh, the show, along with KSB Bank in uh, Keokuk and KSB Insurance. Also, Phelps Insurance in Donaldson is a longtime sponsor of Let's Get Growing. We appreciate their support along with small... Armstrong, small engine from the folks out there. That anything that job. cuts or or uh, mows or uh, you go talk to Steve or uh, Dan and they'll get you taken care of out there at Armstrong Small Engine. Been a long time supporter. We appreciate their support. We do. They're, they're all those all the businesses have been long time supporters and great people to work with. And we do. We very much appreciate their supporting the program so that we can visit with you every Saturday morning. So. And we appreciate KOKX for letting us have their air, their studio here and uh, let us talk about raccoons and moles and but we have fun. all kinds of great things. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Gary, I have to. I just want to. I really. I saw this one. We traveled last weekend up north and um, up to where my uh, my mom lives and where my family's from. And so we had a chance to go through a couple of gardens on the way. We stopped in Ames and then on up to Algona, but. Uh, Visited a couple of gardens, but one at Ames. Ah, most of them they they have not had the weather that we've had. Their crops look really good. Mm. Um, They have not had the high temperatures quite or as extended as we have. Nor have they been as dry, and nor were they as wet in the spring. So they they're looking pretty good. That sounds like a good combination. It is really. We need to learn from them. I think. (laughs) But anyway, I wanted to talk to you about Azenia. We often this last year we've been talking a lot about hostas and hydrangea, but I did want to mention Azenias just one more time before the season's over, and one that you need to just jot down or kind of put back in your mind and that is what we call the little lion, and that's the plant of the week, and it's a little lion, and it's a zinnia, and summer just wouldn't be summer without candy-colored zinnias, and I really enjoyed them. And We were at a garden over the weekend, and it was just filled with zinnias, and it was just absolutely beautiful. They seem to hit their stride when the heat reaches its peak, and these beloved annuals with deep deep roots deep in Mexico decorate the landscape week after week, and they're just gorgeous. And one that I think is just fantastic, as I mentioned already, is called Little Lion. It's an heirloom zinnia, and it stands out uh, from the rest by virtue of its fully double orange-red blooms, which look like a shaggy miniature lion's mane. They're about four to five inches across, and the flowers offer a really nice, wide landing pad for butterflies. And this uh, cultivar uh, is uh, one of the best new varieties in 2011. Uh, again, it's ti- it is an annual, 
and the height is about 36 to 42 inches tall. And, of course, being a zinnia, it absolutely loves full sun, average to well-drained soil. Uh, mulch will help preserve moisture in the soil. Uh, you want to pinch it to encourage that bushy growth, just as we do with the chrysanthemums. And for fertilizer and containers, use a quick-release plant food every two to three weeks. We usually start zinnias always by seed, which makes them nice, uh, very low-cost plant with lots of color. And we just think that's terrific. If there's a drawback to zinnias, it's, it's, it's true. It's the old powdery mildew that we often speak about. Uh, they're also somewhat vulnerable to leaf spots, gray root, and gray mold. Um, zinnias are famous for falling prey to powdery mildew. So we try to not overplant them. In other words, we try to make sure and leave some space between them. We want good air circulation. We want to water them regularly. And that will go a long, long ways in keeping them from developing uh, powdery mildew. So again, make sure you deadhead, and that will encourage more blooming as well. You know, something we haven't spoken about, Gary, too much, but we use a lot, and that's wheelbarrows. And I thought about that the other day. I thought, you know, we should really talk about wheelbarrows. There are so many different things available. Um, I can remember uh, the wheelbarrow we had. It seemed like you always had to pump up the tire uh, before you could use it. I was going to ask you, what do you prefer? (laughs) Solid tire or air tire? I like, uh, well, it depends. And and I think not only that, but I, I tell you one that I really do like, the larger the tire the better I like it, I Absolutely. think. Um, that's something I've learned. And then also, the almost, the longer the handles on the wheelbarrow, better I like it, too. I think you get a little more leverage. And I'm not sure I've, I've experienced that. Okay. Well, you know, there's lots of different wo- the kinds. the tires do make a difference. They do. There's lots of different. I think one of the best tools you can have in the garden is, tr- is a trusty wheelbarrow. Absolutely. And, um, in fact, I think the one that we have is probably 20 years old and still doing very, very well. And I have to tell you that there was times when our young people, when our kids were home, that that wheelbarrow sat outside quite a bit. It'd be full of water. The water would even freeze in it. And still it looks pretty good. Sure. Painted it a couple of times. There's lots of different materials that you can find now. You have painted wheelbarrow? I have painted it. I did. Yeah. You can buy wooden wheelbarrows, fiberglass, steel. What am I forgetting? Those are the ones that come to my mind. I like the wooden handled ones. Those are not really like nice. the the metal handled ones. I'd agree with that. Yep. I'd agree they with that. They will bend if you get yep. you get a lot of weight in them, and and a lot of times people don't know how to load a wheelbarrow. Yep. So if you're working with somebody and you're shoveling, well, we we were putting rocks, pretty good sized rocks. Yep. In one, and of course yep. the the person that we that I was working with loaded it to the back well when you go to pick it up all the yeah. weights on the handles and that mm-hmm. it makes it hard to wheel so you know one of those i forgot it's polypropylene yeah they make now those. those are pretty good yeah they also make them in different shapes now i've seen it where they even come to a spout so you can pour concrete you can put concrete mm-hmm. in it and then you can put rock or concrete in around a post and it kind of pours in so that's kind of new too yep so, I guess a couple of things I just say that wheelbarrows come in all shapes and sizes. Probably the model of capacity that we like the best is three to five foot. One of them the other day I saw not only had a wheelbarrow, but inside that wheelbarrow was kind of a uh, plastic container that you could fill with water, and then you could take the wheelbarrow with this uh, 
I would almost call it a bladder-like um, uh-huh. plastic or rubber container that you could fill with water and take it out and water trees with it. Oh, it was wow. really pretty slick. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I guess the key thing is just as you mentioned, there's some they can wheelbarrows with steel or polypropylene tubs. We have wood or steel handles. Uh, wooden handles are easily to preserve, easily sealed to preserve them and hold up extremely well. Uh, we also have galvanized steel now that prevents rusting from what we used to have. Also, I just mentioned again, remember that long handles mean better leverage. There you go. There are some in terms of wheels. Uh, again, we talked about that, Gary. The bigger, the better, as far as I'm concerned. A large diameter, diameter wheel rolls more easily than a small one. And the be- very best have wheel-bearing hubs or, or ball-bearing hubs. Tires may be pneumatic or they may be uh, flat Proof rubber, uh, rubber tires or plastic wheel assemblies deteriorate if left exposed to the sunshine, so keep that in mind. We also have wheelbarrows that have two or three wheeled wheels on them, which makes them a little steadier, but, yep. but not quite as maneuverable. Right. So lots of different price ranges. Yeah, motorized ones. I'm, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. Um, I guess those are just some of the things. Uh, color is important. Blue is fine. So is red. Green, I have kind of a problem. Have you ever tried finding a uh, green wheelbarrow in the garden? I have ever seen one. Yellow is the best. Yellow. Yellow. You can find it anywhere. So those are just some I things about... I stick with my old blue. Oh, okay. I've had it a long time. Okay. Right beside the radio flyer? Or is that is that the, the red wagon? No, no, no. No, no. no. Okay. I think we do have one. Of those. Yeah, I, I noticed we had one the other day, too. So, But anyway, Gary, those are just some thoughts about wheelbarrows. more apples talking like that. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. But there's lots of good choices. And, uh, you know, before we go to a break here, I want to mention, too, this is kind of off the subject, but it deals with wheelbarrows. This is a good time if you're out in the, in the country. Um, you know, we always talk about those yearly, maybe multi-year chores, but this is a good time to give some thought to digging up septic tanks and, and cleaning those out. Um, this is a good time of the year to do that before the frost and the freeze, and the ground conditions are very dry, so you can move trucks around without damaging your lawn too much. So, I know. Real ground exciting is news, hard. isn't it? It is very hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, anyway... Um, those are some comments about wheelbarrows, though. Uh, again, uh, take a look around locally. Don't get in a hurry to buy. They last longer. That's right. That's exactly Clean right. Clean them out good, especially if you pour concrete or anything like that. That's right. We're going to take a break. Hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be back to wrap things up with Let's Get Growing. It's Christmas in July. Okay, well, not really, but I'm here at a local tree farm with Paul Ray from ISU. And, Paul, um, what types of trees do well in our zones? Well, the ones that we like to grow the best would be scotch pine and then uh, followed closely by white pine. Scotch pine would be most common and then uh, followed by white pine, some red pine. And then we've gotten into some of the firs, which, of course, are very popular. Things like Canaan fir and Fraser fir, balsam fir, occasionally Douglas fir. And then once in a while, we even try some spruces, although we have to be careful of the spruces because they don't hold our needles quite as well. But all, So we have a whole variety of conifers that we tend to use. And what are you doing now to prepare for the holiday season? Well, this is really our busy time. This is a time that we really work hard to uh, to correct the tree and its growth. And I'm not saying that it's wrong, but it tends to grow a lot. So the first thing we'll often do is do the top work. 
and we'll work with that top whorl of branches and straighten it out. Maybe uh, it's crooked, so we may have to do some straightening. We may have to do some thinning on it, but sort of establish a little miniature Christmas tree at the top. And then once I have that established, we'll go ahead and, and finish the shaping process. And usually we use either a shearing knife or in some cases a mechanical or rotary shearer to finish the job. And how long does it take to grow that perfect Christmas tree? Six to seven years for scotch pine and unfortunately quite a little bit longer than that for the firs. Up to 12 to 14 years for the firs from the time we plant them as seedlings. And then what are some of the advantages to the real Christmas trees? Big advantage is, there, is that they're renewable. So while we have them planted in the field, they still give off oxygen, they still fix that carbon dioxide. And then of course once the Christmas tree is consumed by the consumer, we can go ahead and use it and we can use it as mulch, fish habitat, and then we go back in and plant two or three new trees after that. Oh, that's great to hear. And if you would like more information on real Christmas trees, be sure to log on to these websites. For Gardening in the Zone, I'm Liz Gelman. I put up with a lot. And even though I'm standing here holding my wife's purse-sized puppy who is currently yapping in my face, what I won't put up with is outdoor power equipment that won't work. That's why I use Echo Outdoor Power Equipment, professional-grade equipment backed by a five-year warranty. As for Echo Power Equipment at Armstrong Small Engine, two miles north of Donaldson, Highway 218. Use Echo. Get serious. Well, we're down at Gate City Seed Company, and Dave's doing a little summertime dance over here. He's doing I'm a, trying. I think it's a rain dance. I think it's a rain dance. Maybe we can get some of this uh, grass to grow, then we'll have something to work on, okay? But we still do have the bugs trying to come in. Of course, Gate City Seed can help with that. We've got... Uh, the rodents, the mice are moving again already. Every time we got a change in the weather, the mice are trying to come in. Of course, we have the one bite down at Gate City Seed. It works every time. They can't be immune to it like Decon and your others. Buy one bite at Gate City Seed. Any kind of insect problems, any kind of problems in the, in the house or yard, come and see us at Gate City Seed, 824 Main in Keokuk. And we're back with Let's Get Growing. Man, time flies. I'll tell you, it just doesn't seem like right <laughs> to be wrapping things up. Already. I know. I agree. Gary. We need a longer show. We do. We'll have to talk to somebody yeah. that has some authority around here. That's right. I wonder who that might be. That's good. You know, a couple of questions that we often receive about gardening is, I'd love to garden, but my allergies really give me a difficult or tough time. That could be a problem. So I guess some of the things that we just suggest to some of our master gardeners, uh, don't let allergies slow you down. There's lots of different ways to... To, to work with that, and probably the best is to talk with your doctor, of course. But we know that in the spring, allergy season, we see pollen of the ash and the birch and the elm and the hickory and other trees. And then late spring and summer brings problems with grass, grasses. And then summer and fall continues the agony with lots of weeds such as dock, ragweed, and amaranth. But the plants that often cause allergies are those whose pollen is airborne and have inconspicuous flowers so those brightly colored fragrant flowers have heavy pollen that need insects to transfer them and they're not a big as big a problem because they're not airborne as some of our smaller flowers inconspicuous flowers but the first step in gardening with allergies is to identify the plants that cause the problems and allergies can change over time as can our sensitivity I know when I was younger, I had absolutely no problem with allergies, and now I find myself looking for some uh, medication in the spring or in the fall um, to help get rid of some of those problems. But altering your surroundings can significantly reduce your exposure. For example, if you do have a real problem with allergies, you may not plant quite as many trees, or you may not have 
quite as large of a grass lawn as, as someone who has no problems. But I just wanted to mention one source, and that is the American Academy of Allergies. They have developed a calendar, and um, they, they are located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I'd encourage you to take a look at that calendar. It's called the American Academy of Allergy and Immunology and the United States Pollen Calendar, and it's a great, great tool. We're going to have to wrap things up for today. We want to thank everybody for joining us with Let's Get Growing each Saturday morning at 720 on KOKX AM 1310. From all of us here at KOKX Studios at 108 Washington, thanks for listening.